Happy Mother's Day. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them a framework. These words aren't magical, yet when we say the Lord's Prayer, use those words. It's a guide that God's given us to help us pray well. I have a slide. I'd like us to say together the opening phrases because they focus our attention on God, on God's kingdom, on God's will, that it be done on earth. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no greater desire that we can have than to ask that God's kingdom come, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, be recognized as king. There's a great God-pleasing request in that prayer, your kingdom come, to ask that the king's people reveal the glories of the king and his kingdom so as, they, as we follow his laws, as we speak his truth, wherever life takes us, that he's lifted up and glorified. Our Father in heaven, that just reminds us how we're to dress our God. He wants to know us in that intimate relationship as a father, as a good heavenly father, and a close relationship. God sent Christ, sent Jesus to die for us so we could have that relationship, so that sins wouldn't get in the way, our, fail, our failures, our frailties, so we could stand pure before God and not be afraid, but stand with confidence because we are in Christ and in his forgiveness. Hallowed be your name. It re reminds us that God is set apart, that he's to be worshipped, that he's holy, he's to be honored, that we need to recognize his glory, that we need to admit that we fail to recognize his glory. We sin and we go our own way. It reminds us that we need to surrender, to believe in him, to trust in him, to follow Christ and to learn of his ways. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's the phrase we're focusing on this morning, on this Mother's Day. And when we mention God's kingdom, then we automatically must think about Jesus Christ, because there is no kingdom without the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world, who was planned to die so that there could be a kingdom and that we could be a part of it. So when we talk about Jesus, sooner or later, we're going to talk about his kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom, sooner or later, we need to think about and talk about and follow Jesus Christ, learn and trust in him. So Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And the better prayers for people are going to happen when we first think about God and his kingdom. So when we pray, your kingdom come, or Jesus, come back soon, what are we thinking about? What, what are we asking God to do? Well, I have to admit, I'm using Elmer Townsend's framework here, and he has five key things we need to know about the kingdom of God. So we got a handful, okay? So you can tick them off. And the first point are, are the first two. God is king, thumbs up and he has a kingdom. What do you expect the king to do? Well, in the United States of America, we have three branches 
of government. The legislative branch, the Congress, determines the law, creates the laws. The judicial branch, the courts and the judges, they interpret the laws, they apply the laws to different events that happen in our world. The executive branch, the president and his cabinet, well, they administrate the government, they organize it, they, they set policy and make things happen, supposedly, right? <laughs> we hope. But God is king. He does all three, and he does them perfectly and well. He determines the rules of his kingdom. And by the way, they're right and fair. He's the judge, so rule breakers get punished. Those who obey and trust in him will be rewarded. God administrates his kingdom. He runs his kingdom with patience and mercy and fairness in heaven and on earth. God is able to do this because he's God Almighty, because he's planned it, he's designed it, no one can thwart him, no one can stop him, no one can overrule him. I'm glad he's a good God. God is king, but not only that, God has a kingdom and he rules it now. Now, it's not like earthly kingdoms, and you may remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate in John chapter uh, 18, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is a king, and his kingdom, he is ruling it now, but it's not like this world's kingdom. Citizenship in God's kingdom is determined by faith, by belief. So it covers every border, every nation, every forest, every jungle, Everywhere in all the world, it's made up of all the people groups everywhere who believed in him. God's kingdom's invisible now, but soon it's going to be, the invisible is going to be connected with the visible. When Jesus returns to earth, God is king, and he has a kingdom now. Adam and Eve were created to be stewards of that kingdom, but they rebelled. They were tricked. They were fooled. The first Adam failed to obey. He rebelled against God's rule and trouble came into the world. Sin and suffering and death came. Jesus, the second Adam, the son of God, the true king, did not fail. He obeyed his father. He listened to him in everything perfectly. He went to the cross willingly to pay for our sins. And anyone that turns to him becomes a part of that kingdom, God's invisible kingdom. So when you and I thoughtfully, sincerely pray, your kingdom come, what are we saying? What are we asking God to do? God, you are my king. That's what we're saying. Your kingdom come. God, you are my king, and I desire to have you and your kingdom laws guide my life. Come rule in your rightful place as king over everything you've created. That being the case, Lord, so rule in my life. Take charge of my life. Lead me. Guide me. 
Guide my steps today. Guide my words today so what I say reflects your kingdom. Lord, guide my work today. Guide what I fill my mind with so that I speak your truth, so it leads me to actions, so I think about it, to actions that please you in your kingdom. Strengthen my faith, Lord. Your kingdom comes so that I obey your commands to love the unlovely, to love my enemy the way you loved me when I was your enemy. My Lord and King, help me to believe your words that the greatest people in the world are those who serve, who put others' interests first before their own. Help me to believe that that's true, that your kingdom is the true kingdom. Make my life a shining light of all your glories. Father in heaven, let your kingdom come and let it begin to come through your people. Lord, (laughs) when I think about all those things, it's like, Lord, change my heart and heart and soften the clay and shape it and mold it so that I show, so that we show off the handiwork of your saving grace. When we say your kingdom come, it is a huge idea. By the way, The kingdom of God starts in Genesis chapter 1 and ends in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. It fills the scriptures. The king and his kingdom are the themes of the scriptures. It's a huge thought. (laughs) There's a lot to study. So Jesus is the king who will judge his creation justly. And one of these days, every knee will bow and every tongue confess You know how that finishes, right? That Jesus is Lord. Humble belief allows us to stand in that kingdom now and will stand in God's presence with joy. God is king and he has a kingdom. Third, God's kingdom is not here yet in all its fullness. We need to remember that. That's why we say, your kingdom come. God's ruling over the whole universe. He's made it, he's created it, he controls it. But it's very, very obvious that God's will is not being done on earth now as it is in heaven. So when we ask your kingdom come, we are asking for God's divine heavenly kingdom to come and appear. And we know it will one day. At Christmas, we recite Isaiah 9-7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it talks about how the government will rest on Jesus' shoulders. The earthly and the heavenly are going to come together. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. In Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth kind of coming together, melded together so there's not two kingdoms, there's not two, two things happening, but there's just one united kingdom. It's the future where there's no more tears, where there's no more death, where there's no more suffering. So when we pray our kingdom come, we're admitting that God's kingdom is not here in all its fullness, and we're asking for God to bring it and that we want to be a part of it and reveal it. People have always been rejecting God. 
Psalm 2 talks about it. I read the first few verses of Psalm, Psalm 2. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The earth, kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed ones, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want. We're always rejecting God. That's humanity's way. But God's patient. So before he judges the earth, he works to rescue us. That's the amazing thing about the true God, the Christian God. He could judge us. He could start fresh, but instead he chooses to rescue, to save, to redeem, to transform a people for himself. The letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan rebelled. He brought unholy angels with him who rebelled against God's rule. There's some mystery there. And he's been working to turn the world against God from the very beginning. It started in the garden when he deceived Eve and Adam disobeyed God's command about that forbidden tree. And Jesus talks about what Satan is like. In John chapter 8, he says Satan's a liar, that he's a murderer, that lying is the devil's native tongue, and we've been following him, following his lies, following his doubting, his the way he questions God's rule. In Ephesians chapter 6, then, Paul reminds us this about this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Teresa Yacono is going to just take a moment or two to share a testimony about some of that battle that's going on around us that you've experienced, that Satan is actively opposing God. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're asking God to overcome Saint Teresa. I needed a helmet two weeks ago. Where was that armor when I needed it? Brian and I made a quick afternoon visit to some sweet friends, Gabriel and Maribel, two Saturdays ago, and then we decided to take a walk. Uh, my brother-in-law translated so they could appreciate this. While walking, we stopped to say hello to a neighbor. And because I like to do things in a really big way, I passed out and smashed my face into a car, twisted my neck, and hit the concrete. Sorry if I'm a little slurry. <laughs> I have some stitches in my mouth. After getting home, I passed out a few more times and would continue that trend into the emergency room until the morning hours. 
Around 1.30 a.m., I was moved to the cardiology floor. Since visiting hours were well over, Brian was encouraged to go home. And while at a light on City Line Avenue, going back home to Havertown, a car pulled up right next to him. The passenger rolled down the window and smiled, put the music a little bit higher, and pointed a gun at my husband. Other than us living in a really broken world, there's very little explanation to any of what happened two Saturdays ago. Yesterday, I looked at my medical records as if I needed some kind of heart defibrillator again, and I saw that I had had eight tests done, some stitches on my face, 12 EKG and ECG leads, a CT scan of my facial bones, my head and spine, a thoracic echo complete with bubble study. Yeah, bubbles. A tetanus shot, a COVID test, a pregnancy test. I wasn't even awake for that one, and that was negative, by the way. And all that sounds really fancy, and I don't really recall much of it. However, the one thing that medical tests can't determine is the level of spiritual warfare you're a part of. You see, weeks before, we made a decision to help a few people, to share the scripture with a few who don't know God, to increase our Bible reading, to pray more together. Brian started to go into the men's Bible study, and we challenged our son to lead a few lost friends at Drexel to Christ. When you increase prioritization of God in your life, you have an enemy, and he hates you. But our God is bigger. The one verse that I kept saying in the hospital was Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against us will prosper. The world is really mixed up right now. But I don't want you to be afraid to do exactly what God is nudging you to do. Today is the best day to ask God to come in your heart and save you. We have all sinned. We all are short of who God is and his glory. And the penalty of those shortcomings is death. But here's where the excellent news comes in. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to steal your thunder. <laughs> we just celebrated Easter, and we saw that Jesus died on that cross. He offered himself as a gift for us, and that's love. And when I was in 10th grade, I realized I needed that kind of love. And I confessed and asked God to come into my heart and be my savior. Maybe you had a weekend like us. Maybe your last year has been a complete mess. Ask God to be in control, to come into your heart today and save you, and then don't ever look back. He offers great protection, even when you face plant a car and you get a gun pointed at you. Thank you, Teresa. So be alert. Satan's at work. We need God's armor. We need his word. We need to believe. We need to stand firm. We need to help one another do that. But we don't need to live in fear because Christ has defeated Satan at the cross. And those who believe in him are protected. And even if we die, <laughs> we're alive. So we follow our king. I had David, when we were reading the scriptures, stop at, remember Lot's wife. 
Why? <laughs> There's method to my madness. Because she was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels came and pulled she and her family, Lot and his daughters and her, out of the city to deliver her. But she turned back. The deliverance was there and safety to enter God's kingdom. But she got lost and turned her back on the deliverance of God, the deliverance of Christ, and, and went back and stayed put in the kingdoms of the world. And she was destroyed. She suffered death and destruction. And as far as we know, then, she wasn't a person of faith, so she is separated from God for forever. There's a story in Luke chapter 5 that always kind of rocks my world a little bit, so to speak, or shakes me up, and it's, it's a famous miracle that Jesus did early on in his ministry. It's the, 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 the miracle of the great catch of fish. The, the disciples had been fishing all night, they didn't catch anything. Jesus used Peter's boat to preach from. And then after he was done teaching the crowds, he said, put out into deep water and throw down your nets. And Peter said, we've been fishing all night and didn't catch anything, but because you say so, we will. And after they went out fishing, yeah, the nets got full. There was a great catch of fish. The, the nets were busting. They had to have help to bring in all the fish. And when they got to the shore, Jesus said, or excuse me, Peter just said, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And, and Jesus said, don't be afraid. You used to go catch fish, but now I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And when they got to the shore, what did the, the disciples do? They dropped their nets and they followed Christ. If Jesus asks you and me to drop our nets, will we do it and follow him? See, the invisible kingdom of God is coming, and soon it, and it touches the visible now. His kingdom rule of love and grace changes how we think, and what we know is really true, and it's going to affect my words and my actions, and we fail and we stumble and we confess our sins, and in our best moments we reveal God's glories, in our worst moments when we confess our failings and our sins and God's glory is revealed because his grace is being seen and shown how he's changing unholy people toward holier people. God is king and he has a kingdom. God's kingdom's not on earth yet, and God's kingdom is coming and can come now. Because when you believe, as Teresa shared, his kingdom come and is a part of you. He dwells in you by praying and asking for forgiveness. So when we say your kingdom come, we're asking Christ to be our leader and our king. Number five, prayer brings God's kingdom. This is the great paradox. <laughs> God's sovereign and human responsibility. How do the two things come together? Two realities that seem to clash in their thinking, and we often misunderstand it. Somebody asks the question, if God knows what we need already, 
Why should I ask him for it? If God's going to do what God's going to do because he's the sovereign king, then what difference does my prayer make at all? Since God is sovereign, then inevitability is that his will is going to be done and our desires, my wishes, aren't going to override it. But Jesus teaches us to pray like the persistent widow. Why would he ask us to do it if it doesn't make a difference? Here's a wrong attitude. I pray because I'm commanded to, but it doesn't make a difference. Sometimes we pray like that. But that's not what Jesus teaches us about prayer. Faithless, weak prayer happens when we're fatalistic. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. And what I pray doesn't make a difference. Well, that's not what Jesus says. That's not the right view of God's sovereignty. It's actually a destructive view, so you need to get rid of that view if you think your prayers don't make a difference. Do you realize it's not God's will for people to die? Or why would Jesus come to destroy death? So if I pray that people would come alive and know God, it it makes a difference. It's not God's will for people to go to hell. Or why would he send a son to take away the penalty for our sins on himself so we can avoid eternal suffering, hell's punishment? And by the way, your prayer is not a vending machine kind of thing, like we pray and bend God's will so we get what we want when we push the certain button. That's not what prayer is. True prayer focuses on God's name, his kingdom, and his will. And that's why Jesus started the Lord's Prayer with focusing on God and his kingdom. So our prayers do make a difference. So what happens if you don't pray? Then you don't receive. Don't ask, don't receive. Don't knock, the door won't be opened. Don't seek, and you will not find eternal life if you don't pursue it. If you don't ask for God's kingdom to come into you, it won't. If we don't ask for Jesus' kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, then it won't come. At least not in your generation. Think about that, believer. Prayer does make a difference. There's two examples in Scripture. I'll mention one and, and, and dwell on, on the other a little bit longer. The story of Elijah is a great lesson on prayer. You can find it in 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19. Take time to read that story. Elijah prayed passionately, James tells us. He was a righteous man. He was just like you and me. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. And then God told him, I want it to rain again, so pray for it to rain. Why would God ask him to pray for it to rain? And he had to pray, ask seven times before it did. Interesting. It teaches me about praying according to God's will. And then the other story is in Acts chapter 12, which is a story we looked at a few months ago when we were going through the book of Acts. Remember when Peter was in prison? And the church was fervently, it says, passionately praying for him to be released. And yet, when Peter was released, 
They were surprised. They didn't believe it to happen. It's like they were saying, well, I guess James was in prison and we prayed for him and James was killed by the sword by Herod. So I guess we're supposed to pray because Jesus commanded us to, but James died. So I guess that's going to be Peter's lot because Jesus told us that the world's going to get worse and worse and it's going to get, you know, it's going to be terrible times and we're going to die. So I guess we'll pray and we'll ask God to deliver, but we really don't expect it to happen. I'm sorry, I'm kind of embellishing there or creating a story. But you see, sometimes we pray like that, don't we? We need to pray believing. There's this insolvable tension that we must accept and trust that God's sovereign plan is going to be accomplished with or without us. (laughs) But he invites us to be a part of praying for his will to be done. And it'll make a difference. Elmer Towns challenges us us with this. It's your choice. You can bring, help bring God's kingdom. God does it by himself when he wants to do it, but God has commanded us to pray. So when we pray, your kingdom come. When you pray it this week, You've decided to live for God. When you pray that prayer, you've decided to live by his kingdom principles, to let them rule your life. You've decided to glorify God in everything you do. We've decided, if we pray that prayer, that life is a choice, and we've chosen the kingdom of God. Remember Lot's wife. Our dream home is God's home. That's what we're praying. When we pray your kingdom will come, we understand that it doesn't come all at once. You don't get a high school diploma in one year. It takes 12. For some of us, it might take a few more. It takes many years for God's kingdom to begin to settle in and take over our lives, to take root So we plant the seed when we pray, your kingdom come. And then the kingdom grows, it matures, and it produces fruit in its day. A lot more could be said, but I dare us. God is challenging us to say, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Begin to let me show it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be lifted up and honored. May your glories be seen in us and adored in the world. We pray that it would happen by more, through us to more and more people, through all your people around the world. May, may many in the world see the glories of your kingdom in your people and come to faith. Lord, if there's someone here today that is not a part of your kingdom, stir in their hearts to ask for it to come into their mind and their hearts and dwell them and make them a citizen of your kingdom, we pray. Forever and ever, for your honor and glory, we ask it. Amen.